Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Starbucks Pistachio Latte will transport you to your happy place. The comforting flavor of pistachio, warm espresso and milk, all with a brown buttery topping. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, author Jonathan Gould returns to finish discussing his book, Otis Redding, An Unfinished Life. In this episode, Jonathan and Nate cover the peak years of Otis Redding, his breakthroughs in England and California, the tragic plane crash, and his legacy. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to Let It Roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and this week joined again by Jonathan Gould for part two of our interview on his book, Otis Redding, An Unfinished Life. Jonathan, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. I've had a, I've had a week to to think about uh, uh, all of this again, and that's that's been sort of fun. Cool. I've been uh, uh, diving deep into Otis's posthumous discography and 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 rereading the second half of the book. So hopefully we'll be ready. Last time we ended uh, with Otis's version of Respect, the original version, and uh, later to be covered by Aretha Franklin, and 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 this this week I want to open. Um, we'll talk a little bit and get to the song, but this first song I want to talk about is is his version of Try a Little Tenderness, which you uh, hypothesized that he probably learned off of an Aretha Franklin Columbia album. I, I, I would think so, yes. I mean, you know, that that was a song that um, uh, uh, obviously it's, it's, it's one of the, you know, one of the Tin Pan Alley standards. It's part of the great American songbook and, and uh, virtually every uh, sort of, uh, singer of, of Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra's generation recorded it at one time or another, but I think that probably it came to Otis's attention because Aretha had covered it, and and he had probably heard her heard her perform it um, on, on one of the few occasions that they actually did perform together. It's also something though that Sam Cooke did on uh, Live at the Copa, and and yes. you know you quote Otis saying that he wanted to fill the gap that Sam Cooke had left. Uh, I want to fill the silent vic- vacuum that was left when Sam Cooke died. Yeah. And I, talk about that a little bit. Well, um, in many ways, Sam Cooke was, was probably Otis's most important influence. Um, 
and I think the the same could be said for almost every every soul singer um, of Otis's generation. Um, Sam Cooke was the was the original sort of crossover artist in a, in a very particular way. Sam had been a, a a huge gospel star. He had been the lead singer in the Soul Stirs, who were the the the, the foremost gospel um, uh, a quartet of their of their time. Um, at a time when gospel music was was reaching a kind of creative and 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 even commercial peak in 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 the early 1950s, and then he crossed over, as as the expression goes, in the most spectacular way, going directly from that to having a number one record on the pop charts. Uh, you send me was really his first serious um, release as a, as a as a popular singer. And it went to number one on both the R&B and, and pop charts. So that made a very strong impression on the minds of, of almost every black artist of the 1950s, um, including Otis. And I think that um, while Otis started off as a little Richard imitator, uh, because Richard came from Macon and, and Richard, too, had a, had a great success, um, Sam's example, Sam Cooke's example, uh, both in, as uh, his musical example and his example of, of the way he 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 basically ran his career. He was um, he was uh, uh, understood to be very much in control of his own career, uh, of his own recordings, of of his own trajectory as an artist. Uh, made a huge impression on 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 Otis, and and how could it not? Sam had an extraordinarily um, uh, supple voice, could sing anything. He was also extraordinarily good looking. He had a great kind of cool about him. Um, he shared with Otis an inability to, to dance, by the way. Neither of them were, were good dancers. Both of them had to compensate for the fact that they couldn't dance um, well uh, in, in, in developing another kind of stage presence. But anyway, um, Otis modeled himself on Sam, I, I think you could say, as soon as he could. And um, covered in, uh, over the years... Uh, uh, at least half a dozen, probably more um, of Sam's songs on his records. Uh, and you, you mentioned live at the Copa. Um, Phil Walden, Otis's manager, said that, that Otis just made a study of that record. Um, I mean, and, and, and there's an interesting sort of parallel between their, between their two sort of um, careers as sort of breakthrough artists. Um, Sam was 10 years older than Otis, uh, and what that meant was he was a, of another generation of performers. And Sam Cooke's idea at a certain point of, of how to pursue his career meant crossing over into the world of um, big city nightclubs, as it was thought of, the, the sort of places that singers like Sinatra or Tony Bennett or, or, or Perry Como um, that is to say, the the, the 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 big white singers of of that period, um, the sort of uh, the sort of places that they were the venues that they would play, and of those, uh, probably the the um, the most famous was the Copacabana nightclub in New York. It was one of these places that had been a speakeasy during the during Prohibition, and then had 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 converted over into this sort of this this supper club, a dinner club, and and um, it cost a lot of money to go there, and and people, you know, people would take. Uh, people there on their expense accounts and things like that. So Sam Cooke, um, you know, for him, uh, a kind of pinnacle of, of success 
would be to 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 perform at the Copa. And actually, he did perform for the Copa very early in his career. I think it was in 1957 and kind of had a disastrous experience there. He didn't go over at all. Um, he was on the bill with a, 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 a sort of horse belt comedian and the people just didn't know what to make of him. And, and he didn't know really how to put himself across. So in 1964, um, when he returned to the Copa, uh, uh, to, to, to record a live album, um, he took, he, he made sure that, that he knew what he was doing. Um, he supplemented his band. He did all of the things that he needed to do and sort of crafted his material to this, this white, um, upper middle class sort of high roller audience, uh, went over extremely well. And on top of that, uh, produced a, uh, an album of it. And Otis just made a study of that album. He, he, he memorized everything on it. He even memorized, um, Sam Cooke's, uh, sort of stage banter. Um, and, uh, and, and incorporated into his, his own act. Um, so that it was, it was really a kind of defining influence on him. And, um, the only difference, uh, an important difference was that by the time Otis was reaching, uh, uh was achieving the kind of success and kind of fame that, um, that, that Sam had, had achieved. Um, this is in 1965 moving into 1966. Um, uh, the, the whole music world had changed sufficiently so that Otis, Otis wasn't thinking about performing at a club like the Copa um, because of, uh, a whole new, a whole new audience had, had, had come into play a whole new, a whole new white audience had, had come into play. And, and it was an audience that was probably symbolized by a club like the whiskey, a go, go in, in, in Los Angeles, um, which was the club that, that, that Otis sort of set his sights on, on performing at as a way of, of breaking through to a kind of new white audience, I guess. And he succeeded. I mean, when he did a four night stand there at the whiskey, Bob Dylan was at three, three out of the four shows. Sure. I mean, uh, to Le Monde was there. I mean, everybody was there. Um, this was uh, the, the whiskey was the, the whiskey was the hot club in, in, in Los Angeles at that time. And it, it had a particular meaning because it was uh, people talk about the new Hollywood, uh, the Hollywood of, of Bonnie and Clyde and the Hollywood of, of you know, the, uh, this this change in Hollywood from the old star system to these to, to the Hollywood of the late 60s and so on and so forth. Um, the whiskey was the place that the rock and roll culture of L.A. And, and, and the film culture of L.A., the young people in both of those, the young stars in both of those worlds sort of came together. So um, uh, Rogers Redding, uh, uh, Otis's brother, gives a great description of, of just these, you know, these limousines pulling up in front of the club, and you know Clint Eastwood getting out, and 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 and, and so on, and uh, Julie Christie getting out and coming in to see Otis uh, in, in his stand at the Whiskey, and um, probably the idea for him to play there came from uh, Ahmet Erdogan, who was the the president of Atlantic Records, um, who was himself very involved, uh, in, had become very involved in the Los Angeles music scene and understood what a, what a successful appearance at the Whiskey could do for, for Otis. I, I'm, I'm almost positive that Ahmet suggested it, um, which, by the way, uh, this, this is the period in which, um, you know, Atlantic Records, Jerry Wexler and Ahmet Erdogan become 
very important figures in 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 the the the, the direction of Otis's career. Um, he's not talking to the people at Stacks about where he should play, uh, what sort of clubs he should play. He's talking to the people at Atlantic about that. They're in a position to give him give him good advice. Um, but yeah, he he performed there. Uh, everybody who who saw those shows said that they'd never seen anything like it. It was it was a dramatic situation because it's a small club. Um, there's dancing. There's some room to dance there. There are also go-go dancers in in, in cages, uh, hanging from the ceiling, which which must have been quite a quite a sight as far as that goes. A very a very sixties image there. Um, but between uh, the, the, the the intensity of his music, the size of his band, um, much bigger than a rock band, and of course he supplemented it with 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 additional horn players when he played a, a big gig like the Whiskey. Um, he really sort of, I mean, the description of blowing people out of the, out of a club, um, you know, is, 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 is a figure of speech, but it, it must have been something like that. It must have felt something like that. Um, this, this, this big man on this small stage with this big band just creating this incredible sort of blast of, 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 of energy and passion. And that's the way people, that's the way people talked about it. Yeah, and it was a key part of his, what in retrospect appears to be, very carefully thought out long-term strategy to break through to the pop audience. I mean, he's playing in the same club that would break bands like the birds and the doors. Sure. And, uh, um, although, you know, it's easy to say in retrospect that it was a master plan, but before we go further, let's hear uh, his version of try a little tenderness, which Jim Stewart have, uh, called if I had to pick the best record stacks ever made, it would be try a little tenderness by Otis Redding. Them young girls, they do get weary. That same old shaggy dress, yeah, yeah. But when she gets weary, try a little tenderness, yeah, yeah. And that was Try a Little Tenderness by Otis Redding, a, a cover of uh one of the pieces of the Great American Songbook, a song that Bing Crosby had done and Frank Sinatra had done, and more importantly for Otis, that Aretha Franklin and Sam Cooke had done. And um, what was it about that song that, that made it so great and such a standout? And you, you point in particular to Otis's ability to handle the lyrics of this song in a way that he had, had maybe stumbled with versions of other Sam Cooke songs. Yeah, well, uh, part of it was this. I mean, the song, the, the first of all, the arrangement, which is unprecedented. Uh, it goes from being a standard um, Tin Pan Alley ballad to, um, you know, to to being a, a, a full blown Stax groove song, um, and and somehow makes that transition uh, feel like the most natural thing in the world, and and makes that transition as at that transition takes place. Um, you know, it, 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 it's not just it's not just a trick. It, it, it flows with the emotional sort of with, with the whole emotional direction and message of the song. So that alone is, is kind of extraordinary. And it's a reminder of Otis's great talent as an arranger. And that's not even talking about the horn arrangement on it and so on and so forth, which which he also was responsible for. But what he's what, what you're hearing, you know, sort of in that song is an African-American performer taking a, a standard Tin Pan Alley song and simply bending it to his will. Uh, I mean, b taking it over and turning it into something 
completely different. And part of what makes it so effective is that his singing of the first verse is um, is uh, on every level in terms of phrasing and and, and uh, it goes without saying uh, Otis always sang beautifully on on pitch, but he starts off by by giving a rendition of the song that that, that any sort of conventional sort of uh, uh, you know a supper club singer would be proud of, and then it goes from there, and that, it's an, and so what what you what you're seeing is an encapsulation of of, of first of all all of the the extremes, I guess you could say, of Otis's own musical sensibility from these, these passionate ballads to these intense sort of, sort of, sort of, um, up-tempo songs. Um, you're also hearing the, this, this amazing band, which can keep up with this, with, 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 with uh, that transition. Um, and of course, Al Jackson, the, 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 the drummer in Booker T and the MGs is, is the linchpin of that, um, and manages to make, make the transition from a slow ballad to a, to a, to a fast dance song just sound like the most natural thing in the world. It's, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not like, it's not like something stops and then, and then, and then this takes off. Um, and, and, and so in some ways it's not only, uh, not only encapsulates, um, Otis's sort of, sort of, uh, uh, spectrum of his musical sensibility, but it also encapsulates his ambition, um, which is to, to, to take one form of music and, 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 and turn it into, a, uh, another form of music and, 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 uh, by the way, have it be a very successful record while he's doing that. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think one thing that you do in the book is bring out how Otis had, performed for white audiences from the beginning of his career, starting at fraternity parties that his manager, Phil Walden, had booked for him in Georgia. And then, sure. you know, even as he simultaneously worked the Chitlin circuit and in the South and broke through to the big black clubs like the Apollo in the North, he was consistently keeping his, his finger on the pulse of what white audiences wanted as well. And I think having an integrated band with Booker T and the MGs was a big factor in that. And sometimes, you know, when I listen to, to the classic stacks material, Steve Cropper's guitar lines and Duck Dunn's bass lines, there's a real aggression, a real kind of white boy punk spirit that sort of parallels what the Rolling Stones or the Kinks were doing to R&B in England. And, and I, I, to me, it's part of what makes Otis kind of the apotheosis of 60s music in some ways. I mean, he's the king of R&B, but he also you know, takes the lead of Sam Cooke in reaching out to a white audience. And, and one last thing I want to bring up about Sam Cooke is I, I sort of find it poignant that, or ironic that, and tragic that Otis identified so closely with Sam and his own tragic death within parallel Sam, sure. because that they both happened at a moment, you know, Sam Cooke, when he died, was just digesting the influence of Bob Dylan and blowing in the wind and writing his own, you know, change is going to come the first time he'd really tried to bring poetry or personal expression into his lyrics. And, you know, at the same time, he's, he's covering, he's do, writing Shake, which is supposedly influenced by Sly Stone's first production, the Bobby Freeman um, Do the Swim. And, and so Sam mm -hmm. simultaneously, you know, growing like the white artist, keeping up with the cutting edge of white music and keeping his finger on the pulse of black music at the same time. And Otis had the same thing. And, and you talk about, you've got a great quote from Phil Walden, um, that said, black people teach you how to live, he once said. And on that same mm -hmm. page, 
there's a photo of Otis performing for an integrated audience. And it's just this photo. It's on page 307 of your book. It's got to be the worst nightmare of every Ku Klux Klansman out there because <laughs> <laughs> you see all these yeah. uh, white and black kids together, happy. And there's this beautiful white girl smiling and twisting her hair as, she, as, she, as she's introduced to a handsome black kid in the audience. And, and uh, yes. it's just, you know, uh, kind of classic moment and really gets to what Otis was all about. Well, yeah. Um, you know, in terms of his, his, his uh, experience with white audiences, to go back to that for a second, and his, his um, uh, uh, this is, you know, this is something that, that I hadn't really thought of until I started to, to, to research and write about him. But someone from Otis's world, um, that is to say, uh, an African-American man who grew up in the, in the Jim Crow South, um, a person of great intelligence, which everybody agrees Otis was, was, was gifted with, um, develops an ability, uh, a, a survival instinct to, to begin with, um, that comes from reading, for lack of a better term, white people, reading what, what reading their emotions, reading their mood, reading what, what their intentions are. Um, it becomes a, uh, it becomes second nature in a certain way. And again, if, if you're, if you, if you're highly intelligent in the way that Otis, um, was, it becomes, um, uh, you get very, very good at it, I guess is the simplest way to put it. And in a funny way, I think that that carried over into his musical career. Indeed, he started singing it at, at, you know, in, in white fraternities at, at, at uh, you know, uh, Ole Miss and, 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 and Alabama and Emory and, and, and the University of Georgia uh, and navigating those scenes. Um, here's here's a, 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 a big, attractive uh, black singer. Uh, performing in, in 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 the basement of a of a white fraternity, um, you know, you can imagine. That, I mean, talk about a Ku Klux Klansman's nightmare. <laughs> you know, that's that's right there. Um, but at the same time, um, having to be very very careful about navigating the the racial dynamics of that. Well, that that in turn sort of um, expanded as as his career expanded, and so I think that. Um, it's no accident that he knew how to put himself across in front of a, a, a specifically white audience as well as a black audience. He knew how to read those audiences. He knew how to, how to sort of, for lack of a better term, because this is what this is what entertainers do. He knew how to present himself in a way um, that would appeal to them and um, and would also put them at ease. And and that's not a small thing because. Um, then as now, a lot of white people in America are afraid of black people, and uh, particularly uh, particularly big black men. And so um, Otis, I mean, you know, that sounds pretty elemental, but it's it, it's a fact. And Otis had ways of 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 being of putting himself uh, 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 across, despite the aggression of his music and the passion of his music, in a way that was somehow reassuring um, to a white audience, and it served him it served him extremely well. Now, in terms of the the the, uh, the parallel with Sam Cooke and 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 where they where they were in their respective careers when when their careers were tragically ended, it's almost uncanny uh, in the sense that Sam was um, absorbing the influence of uh, the, to some extent folk music. Um, 
uh, there's a, there's a, there are a few records that he made uh, in, in the last year of his life in which, you know, there's a banjo on the record and things like that. But the most important thing that he was absorbing was the, was, was the, the, the lyrical genius, the lyric geniuses, or, you know, of Bob Dylan. And um, and its connection to uh, uh, to um, folk protest, as it was described at the time, um, in Otis's case, of course, it wasn't Dylan. Or the, Otis had had his Otis had had his 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 uh, brush with Dylan at the Whiskey A Go Go. Dylan, as you mentioned, came to those shows. He saw three of them, um, and uh, they met. And when we were last talking, I, I, I one of the one of the things that I said was that uh, that. It was very rare that Otis failed to capitalize on an opportunity um, in the whole course of his career. Um, but I think an important point about um, about his 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 uh, his meeting with Dylan is that might have been one of the very few times in which that's the case. And I, just to sort of get off on that for a second, um, Dylan at that point um, had moved from being a folk star to being a pop star. Um, and uh, was in the midst of this kind of this kind of chaotic uh, uh, sort of world tour, and was about to release Blonde on Blonde, um, which was in some ways his most uh, the, the the album that he produced that was that was most sort of um, uh, uh, influenced by rock and blues. And um, when they met uh, Robbie Robertson, who was Dylan's guitar player at that time, later of the band, had suggested to Dylan that this song that he'd written um, called Just Like a Woman would be perfect for Otis. And Dylan agreed. And uh, when they met at the Whiskey Go-Go, um, Dylan uh, gave Otis a, probably an acetate or, or, or maybe a, a test pressing, um, a demo of Just Like a Woman. And um, I suppose suggested that he might want to sing it. And there are all sorts of versions of of, um, of what happened after that. Uh, Phil Walden liked to say that Otis listened to it and he, he 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 thought it was it was good, but there were too many damn words was the way he described it, which sounds a little condescending. In fact, it's it, as Dylan's songs go, it's extremely economical. It's um, it's you know it's 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 uh, uh, it's got a verse and a chorus and a bridge and and, and that's it. So it's it's not one of those long, endless Dylan's songs. Um, for one reason or another, Otis um, didn't record the song. And when I say I think it's one of the great missed opportunities uh, of his career, or one of the few miss, missed opportunities of his career, I think he would have killed the song if, if he had recorded it. Um, and I think it's too bad that he didn't. Another version of the story goes that he did record it, but he couldn't feel it or something like that. At any rate, um, it was, uh, it was, uh, I think it's unfortunate that he didn't because I think it would could have been a very, very big record for him. Um, but at any rate, by the time, um, well, by, by 1967, the great, the great change in Otis's career um, after his success at not just the Whiskey, but his tours of Britain, um, where he met people like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones uh, in person and, and saw the way they responded to him, saw the way they venerated him. Um, and then his, his great triumph at the Monterey Pop Festival, and, and we can come back to that. But the important thing in 1967 was that um, that was the year that Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band came out. The Beatles' great sort of sort of uh, uh, pop masterpiece, I guess it's fair to describe it as. And Otis, Otis basically took to that record uh, 
dealt with that record the same way he had dealt with Sam Cooke uh, live at the Copa. He listened to it over and over and over again. Um, there's a wonderful line from um, from his wife, uh, Zelma, uh, of Otis coming home with the record and, and, and saying to her, Zelma, you, you got to listen to this thing. This is bad, meaning it's good. And um, he, as I say, he made a study of it. Uh, and and what, what he, what, what the other thing that he said was about it, he says, I want to figure out why everybody thinks it, thinks these guys are so good, um, which is again uh, 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 an insight into his whole into his whole mentality, his whole practice as a um, as an artist, which is that um, uh, you know rather than just thinking of this as some kind of a, a, a fluke or some kind of a strange um, uh, sort of psychedelic uh, uh, you know sort of sort of experiment. Um, he got very deep into the record, and um, it had a very profound influence on the music that he made uh, at the very end of his life. And before we get into the to the end of his life, let's pull back a little bit to a, the first Beatles song, or the only Beatles song that he covered, uh, which was Day Tripper, which you call an act of cultural appropriation. And let's hear it, and then we'll talk about it. <laughs> Day Tripper, which had done it, bassist Duck Dunn's insistence, and and you know for a song that's basically built around a guitar riff, the first thing they do is not play the guitar riff on the guitar; they play yeah. it on the bass. But uh, cut away from that. Talk about this version of of Day Tripper and and how it played into uh, Otis's relationship. They also did a cover of Satisfaction around the same time, and his yeah. relationship with the British bands. Well, he, he sort of did the same thing with both of them. The yeah, satisfaction he did first, and and, and actually had a had a, a an R and B hit with it. Um, and then I think the the obvious thing to do was to take. Well, we did a Stones song. What you know? Can we do that same that same idea with a Beatles song? And they sort of do the same thing. And and what's so what's so wonderful about it? And what's so funny about it is that. Um, uh, he kind of deconstructs the the, the uh, these songs. I mean, to, to to use a literary term, in the sense that he kind of takes them apart and basically dispenses with all of the parts of the song that that that, uh, um, that, that the original sort of writers sort of in the, uh, that is to say uh, uh, Lennon and McCartney in the case of of Day Tripper and 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 uh, uh, Jagger and Richards in in, in the case of Satisfaction. He, he kind of throws out all of the part of the song that probably they were most proud of. Um, uh, in the case of Satisfaction, he just dispenses with it with the verse that sort of has a social commentary aspect to it, um, and kind of like uh, basically just sort of takes the takes the hook of the song, the lyric hook of the song, and riffs on it. Um, and and the feeling of both of them is well, we, we know what this is really about, and what it's really about is, is I mean both of them uh, you know have a powerful kind of sexual charge to them. Um, Day Tripper is, 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 is about a, is about a one night stand and then satisfaction is, 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 well, satisfaction is about satisfaction. And he kind of strips away the whole veneer of, of, of pretense, um, in the best sense of, 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 of good, of good lyric writing and so on and so forth. And just turns the song into this kind of, into this kind of juggernaut, um, where, uh, in some cases he's playing off 
the fact that his audience already knows this song and already knows what it's about and so on and so forth. But um, again, appropriates it, turns it into, into, into his own thing. Um, it, it's even clearer, I think, it's satisfaction where he's sort of saying, you know, enough of all of this stuff. This is a song about satisfaction. This is a song about sex. I'm just going to sort of like, I'm, I'm just going to put this across for, for two and a half minutes in that way. Um, and it's interesting, by the way, that you mentioned Duck Dunn's insistence that they do Day Tripper. You know, one of the things that, that uh, certainly I grew up with as, as, as somebody who came of age or first started listening to popular music in, in the 1960s um, and, 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 and after is there was a sort of assumption on the part of uh, most white musicians, I think, and, and maybe most white audiences, you know, that the, the, the flow of influence went all one way. It went from black music to, um, to white music, uh, that, that white musicians were, 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 uh, were, were drawing constantly on what they heard on R and B records and so on and so forth. And that, and that's fundamentally true. But uh, one of the things that I've learned is I've, as, as, I've, as I've come to write about and listen in a different way to a lot of the music that was made in that period is the influence went the other way. Um, the guys at Motown, uh, uh, you know, Holland Dozier Holland, they were obsessed with the Beatles. And they weren't just obsessed with them because they were so commercially successful. They were obsessed with them because they were really interested in what they were doing in their music. Um, now, Duck Dunn was, 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 a, was a, 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 a white southerner but he was a stone R&B musician and one of the great R&B bassists of his day. And uh, he was fascinated by Paul McCartney's bass playing. I mean, uh, McCartney was one of the most innovative bass, pe- bass players of the 1960s. And people like Dunn were, 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 were picking up on that. Um, and so it's, it's, it's always interesting for me to, to, to understand that the flow of influence among people who are, are, are artistically ambitious um, has always gone both ways in that sense. It's, it's not just, it's not just um, uh, 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 a sort of um, a, a, white, a white appropriation of, of, of black music. And of course, what, you know, what, what I enjoy about um, Satisfaction and, and Day Tripper, uh, Otis also live, I don't think he, I, I mean, he recorded it, but he also did a version of Hard Day's Night that he does the same thing to. Um, uh, is that you know this is this is sort of an example of black appro- appropriation of white rock and roll. Yeah, and 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 I talking about Motown, Otis's cover of the Temptations' "My Girl," written by the great Smokey Robinson, um, that was one of his breakthrough hits in England, and I've, yeah, I've that, found that yeah. fascinating. And and then you know that set him up. Obviously, the Stones covering so many of his songs, and then John Lennon and the other Beatles being such public advocates. You know, John, you've got a great sure. quote from John Lennon. You know, when somebody asks who's an American artist you admire or whatever, boom, Otis Redding is the first thing that pops yeah. out. And and so when Otis does tour England with the Stax Review, it's a key part of breaking through uh, to white audiences. Talk about that tour. They called it Stax uh, Hits the Road in the UK. Yeah. Well, there had been a previous tour in the fall of 1966. He'd gone over with it with his own band for um, for uh, a couple of weeks uh, and uh, made a big, you know, uh, made a big splash in the British music press um, and, uh, you know, had a successful tour there. And in the course of that, he met uh, a lot of the a, a lot of the important British rock musicians, uh, including the Beatles and the Stones. I think in that period, or at least at least one or two of each. Um, 
but the uh, and the success of that tour uh, in, encouraged Phil Walton, who uh, you know had had not been thinking about uh, as Otis's manager and, and 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 booking agent had not been thinking about European tours until this happened. Um, Phil, uh, with with who was uh, 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 an increasingly um, dynamic and competent and 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 imaginative manager. Um, put together this 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 much longer and 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 more sort of um, a better organized tour of 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 uh, Britain and France actually Britain France and 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 um, the Netherlands um, in uh, in the spring of 1967. Uh, Jerry Wexler and, and Ahmed Erdogan were were very involved in in, in the planning for all of this. Um, Phil was drawing on the contacts that he'd made when he went over the the, the previous the previous fall. Um, but the, the real masterstroke about this tour was um, Jerry Wexler's suggestion slash insistence that uh, because it wasn't just Otis, it was other other Stax artists as well. It was Sam and Dave, um, Carla Thomas was there for for a number of the dates uh, and so on. Uh, Wexler said you got to bring the band. You've got to bring the Booker T and the MGs. Now, Otis had never performed live with Booker T and the MGs. They were his studio band. Um, the way it worked was he worked out his arrangements of his songs with them. They recorded them. And then Otis's uh, touring band would learn those songs from the records, essentially. Uh, and um, Otis's touring band at various points was, was very good, but they were not quite frankly, in class with Booker T and the MGs, because nobody was in class with Booker T and the MGs in terms of playing that kind of Southern soul uh, at that point, at any rate. And um, so uh, Wexler said, you got to bring the band. And of course, Booker T and the MGs had had hits of their own, uh, um, Green Onions being the most famous of it. So, so they would not only come as a backup band, but they would also perform a couple of their instrumental hits. Anyway, the tour was 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 a sensation. Um, there's no other way to put it. Uh, nobody, uh, Otis sounded better than he ever had because he was playing with this marvelous group. He was also uh, pressured by Sam and Dave, um, who were uh, um, an extraordinary live act. I mean. Sam and Dave combined sort of um, the, the kind of call and response gospel singing with the, the sort of dancing that some of the great black, um, uh, you know, dancing acts from the from from the, the 30s and 40s, um, you know, the, the, the Nicholas Brothers and people like that. Um, they, they were they were extraordinary on stage uh, as, as live performers. And um, Otis, actually, though, he complained about it endlessly. Um, like the fact that they would that they pushed him um, to uh, to outdo himself essentially every night. Uh, Sam and Dave would come out and blow everybody away, and then it was Otis's job to come out and follow them. In, in that sense, um, at any rate, uh, so the, this this tour was was an enormous success, um, both financially and and um, and creatively, and. Uh, Otis came back from there, and of course, what he wanted to have happen was for Booker T and the MGs to start touring with him as his regular band. He had actually fired his band, um, or uh, laid them off, I guess is the best way to describe it, before he went to Europe, and um, wanted to get Booker T and the MGs to tour with him, and they were not willing to do it. Um, they were not interested in, do in doing it. Stax had finally 
started to pay them the way they deserved to be paid. They they all had status as producers at Stacks by then. And again, you know, they were a studio band. They were not they were not touring musicians. Um, and they weren't interested in, in dropping everything and becoming Otis's backup group. And probably he couldn't have paid them enough to 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 uh, to make it worthwhile for them. Um, that you know, uh, uh, financially worthwhile at that point. Um, and of course, that's uh, and. and, and that was sort of the limbo that he was in um, before before his appearance at Monterey. And um, once again, uh, when they offered to perform at Monterey, they came back they came back from Europe in the spring of of uh, 1967. And um, uh, 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 Monterey was in it was in June of 1967. And when the offer to, to perform at Monterey came, uh, this was this was completely new territory um, because this was a, a rock festival and it was the first rock festival. And on top of that, uh, it was being organized on a nonprofit basis. So the performers were being given their expenses, but uh, they weren't being paid to play there. And um, the, 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 uh, the promoters of the festival, um, Lou Adler and, and John Phillips of, of the Mamas and the Papas, um, they they understood that most of the West Coast groups that were, who were used to doing benefits and things like that and, um, may be willing to, to to play for free, but they tried to get a whole a whole raft of of, of R and B groups uh, beginning with Motown, and um, and the the attitude of most black artists at that time was you know you're out of your mind I'm not I'm not going to interrupt my tour schedule to come out to come out to to, to uh, you know Monterey California. Um, and and play for free, essentially. Um, Otis was one of the very few, or the, let's put it this way: Otis and Phil Walden were one of the one of the very few sort of sort of black artists who even entertained the idea of doing this. And of course, um, Phil tried to figure out if it was on the level, if this would be worth it. Um, the person that he would turn to 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 to, to uh, bounce that off of was, was Jerry Wexler and Wexler said, um, yes, you know, they know what they're doing and this might be the best, this might be the best decision that you've ever made in your life as a manager. So on that basis, um, uh, Otis committed to doing the, uh, doing the festival, but more importantly, Wexler said, if you do it, you got to get Booker T and the MGs to back him up there again. Um, and so that was their that was their sort of second that was their reunion after the um, after the European tour after the Stax Volt tour, and that's the perfect timing to cue up our next song, which is uh, Otis's version of Sam Cooke's "Shake," which he opened his set at Live at Monterey. And that was Shake by Otis Redding with Booker T and the MGs live at the Monterey Pop Festival. But this wasn't the first time that Otis had played in San Francisco. He had actually played uh, for Bill Graham at the Fillmore uh, previously yeah. to that. Uh, in, in December 1966, you know, again, Otis by then was uh, all, certainly by, by the end of 1966, the beginning of 1967, was um, in, 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 the, in, in the world of, of, as we would call it today, underground rock 
which is to say the San Francisco scene, um, or in the world of, of rock in general, I guess, you, you know, Otis was, um, uh, Otis was, was, uh, everybody's best kept secret. Okay. Um, so all of the San Francisco bands, uh, Graham used to, yeah, in the early days, Graham had a very close relationship with, with the San Francisco bands. Um, he would ask them, who should I get in here? Who should I book here? Right. And as he described it, there was one name that, that everybody said, uh, he would have been talking to people from the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson airplane and so on and so forth. Um, and Paul Butterfield's band and, and, and the person that everybody said you should get in here is Otis. So Graham actually took the step of flying to Macon, Georgia. Um, to sort of to convince Phil Walden that that um, Otis should play at this what was then thought of as this hippie ballroom, um, this acid rock ballroom in in, in San Francisco, and uh, he convinced he convinced uh, Otis and Phil to to accept the gig, and 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 Otis played there. Um, the gig itself was was a sensation in that um, it actually it's interesting. It, it, he didn't sell out the place all four nights. Um, and ironically enough, Otis had played at the Fillmore, that same auditorium, um, a year before, before Graham took it over, when it was one of the principal black, uh, one of the principal R&B venues in, in, um, in San Francisco. Um, so he actually, he played that room before. Um, but the, the, the important thing about it was the response of the local music community. Um, Janis Joplin, who was obsessed with Otis, um, understandably so uh graham tells the story that janice janice would show up at at, at, at like six o'clock you know every, every night so that she could um since there weren't seats at the Fillmore, it was an open open floor so that she could position herself in front of the stage um when otis went on at nine o'clock at night or something like that i mean that's how intense she was at, at sort of at, at, at seeing his show and, and and not just seeing his show but of course studying every aspect of his show so, um, yeah, he, he performed there. Graham, who, of course, went on to become one of the, the if, if not the most important rock promoters of, of his generation, um, famously said that uh, at the end of his career, in his memoir, he said that those four shows that, that he did with Otis at the Fillmore were the best shows that he ever put on, that, that, that nothing ever compared with it before, before or after, which coming from someone like him, who was not a effusive personality, is a pretty strong co- compliment as far as that goes. Um, but yes, Otis, uh, here again, Otis, when Otis went out on the stage at Monterey, uh, the, the guys from Booker T and the MGs, when they, when they, when they walked around the, the, the festival site the afternoon before they went on, um, you know, they'd never seen anything like this before in terms of these hippies, these dope-smoking hippies, these girls in miniskirts, these the whole full blooming of, 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 of San Francisco scene, um, as it was then Otis, on the other hand, he'd seen it all before. He knew exactly who he was, he was about to play for. He knew, he knew that audience in that way. And, and there again, um, you, you can't discount that when, when a performer comes out on stage and, 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 uh, uh, um, triumphs in the way that, that, that Otis did at Monterey. It's easy to think that it's, it's just simply because he's so good and he has all this raw talent and like that. Um, the other part of it, uh, in Otis's case there and almost everywhere else was he knew who he was playing for. He knew who these people were. He knew how to put himself across to them. Absolutely. And it's also, I think, very telling that, you know, the Motown bands ducked out and, you know, the Motown bands were, you know, Barry Gordy, their leader was older and they had very much hewn to the sort of Sam Cooke path of 
trying to break sure. through the Copa. You know, the Supremes the are doing yeah. full yeah. albums of Rogers and Hart songs, and and, right. and they just were not at all prepared uh, for the explosion of the white rock audience and the album oriented yeah. audience and otis was and and uh, you know uh, jerry wexler was there at monterey and, and was very nervous especially when booker t and the mgs op- opened up for otis and started off a little cold and a little out of time and uh you know wexler sitting there in, in the audience panicking but uh yeah. otis and 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 the mgs when otis came on with shake they just blew the crowd away well, they did. And, 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 you know, that, that, that version of shake, uh, has to be, uh, has to be, uh, the epitome of something. I mean, it's, it's, just, um, you know, when you, when, when, when you publish a book, you go around and, 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 and you do readings and things like that. And, um, to this day, uh, when I do that, um, cause I want people who haven't read the book in some cases, or even those who have to, to know what it is that, that I'm that we're about to talk about. Um, I, I've often if, uh, I've often started by showing the uh, the video clip um, from from the Monterey Pop film of Otis performing "Shake" at Monterey because it's just um, it's just a, a jaw dropping sort of performance. Um, and uh, the only problem with that, of course, is that if you start um, a reading or, or almost any 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 sort of presentation with that. Um, you know, it's, it's all downhill from there. Essentially, you, you completely you completely upstaged yourself before you before you even get started. But I'm willing to do that because I, I I think he's you know it's it's just that good. But yeah, it's it's a um, it's an astonishing moment. Um, and 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 here again, I mean, what I what, what I write about it in the book is you know I, I talk about how I mean it has to be seen in the context of the the performance style of most of the West Coast, most of the rock performers in general, but most of the West Coast bands in particular, who were so laid back, who were so, you know, they'd come out on stage and I mean, bands like the day would come out on stage and start noodling some instrumental thing and, 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 and then gradually move into something. And, and in general, you know, um, the way bands, uh, the way many, many of, of, the, of, of the West Coast bands and, and English bands too would perform by that time, the blues bands and so on, they'd all be hunched over their instruments. They both, there was this whole sort of sense of them, them turned in on themselves. And um, Otis, on the other hand, comes out there and um, the word command doesn't really do justice to, to what it is. He commands the stage and when he comes out and he, he, he sings the first word of the song, which is shake. Um, it's a command. He's, 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 you know, it, it has an authority to it um, that nobody in that audience had heard coming from the stage um, until that moment. It, it's almost like a whole, there's a whole other sensibility of, of, of what it is to, to present oneself of what it is to perform on stage that, um, that, 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 that sort of came to bear um, in the first, the very first moments of, of his performance there. And people were astonished. <laughs> you know, there was, there was almost like a collective intake of breath as people looked there, looked and heard at what they were seeing and hearing. And then people just sort of 
rushed toward the stage was what happened. Um, and this is late in the evening. This is 12 o'clock at night after a whole evening of music. It's, it's drizzling. It's cold. It's, you know, Northern California in June can be, can be pretty forbidding. And, and it was, it was cold and it was wet and people were just, were just sort of taken out of themselves, um, in the first seconds of, of that performance. And you, and you talked about how, one of the things that was sort of unprecedented about Otis was his expression of black male sexuality. And um, you you talk about how black female performers had been eroticized, you know, since at least the beginning of blues, if not the birth of the nation. And, yeah. and you know, whereas, you know, um, Sam Cooke was the soul of willowy nonchalance, the Motown groups were mm-hmm. scrup- scrupulously regimented. Um Jackie Wilson, James Brown, and Joe Tex were all virtuosic dancers who channeled their sexuality into stylized movement and acrobatic exertion. Otis was another story. His lack of physical grace combined with his size, his good looks, and his obvious pleasure at being on stage to lend a more natural, unscripted, and unrefined sexual charge to his performances. And, and yeah, and that's something I hadn't really thought about, but it's very clear that Otis is breaking down a door for black male performers that you're going to see time and time again through the next couple of generations. I mean, without Otis, you're not going to see Prince or Barry White or absolutely. Yeah. And, or, and, uh, or, or for that, or for that matter, many of the rap performers who, um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, you know, uh, I, I said before that, 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 um, there was something reassuring about him, uh, in the way that he performed in, in front of, of white audiences. And, and, and there was, um, but what made that made that important was that on, on the other hand, he was there, there was a, 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 for lack of a better term, raw sexuality, a, 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 a an unpolished sexuality, to his presence on stage, um, that was 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 very new. And and again, you know, when you see James Brown or, or and you, you mentioned Joe Tex and Jackie Wilson, you know. When when a performer is a, is a virtuosic dancer, when a performer is 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 you know sort of extraordinarily graceful, um, there's an element of control there. There's a, what, what 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 the audience is experiencing is that they're utterly in control that the performer is, and the sexual charge, the physicality of their performance, is is kind of channeled into you know in this case graceful movement, right? Um, and uh, in Otis's case, because he he wasn't a dancer, uh, he, he did develop um, ways of moving on stage, and and initially they were sort of comical because what he would do is he'd stay in one spot and he would march uh, in this kind of almost sort of exaggerated way, holding the microphone in one arm and sort of waving his other arm around, and he would he would march and bend at the waist and all of this, and then and then as he got more comfortable um, over the course of late 66 and 67, he would add these other moves where he would stride from one end of the stage to the other end of the stage with this big long-legged gait that he had. But it was all very, uh, I mean, he would say it was all very country. You know, it was not, it was not this, this refined sort of thing. And um, that made the, the, the other aspects of, of, of the way that he appeared on stage. He, was, he, was, he, was, he had a great physique. He was very good looking. He dressed well. He, you know, he wore those, those the, well, in some cases, those great suits that, that black performers of that generation wore, but also would appear in, you know, sort of, sort of 
you know, tightly tailored pants and, 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 and so on. So all of this kind of the, the, the sort of the, the physicality of his performance was very much was, was, was very much on view. Um, but again, it wasn't channeled into um, dance steps. It wasn't channeled into look at me now. It was just, um, you know, in, in some, I mean, the term that was used in the 60s a great deal, and it, it had a lot of resonance, was a natural man. Um, unrefined, un, unscripted, uh, you know, and I think in some ways Otis uh, came to epitomize that uh, during the brief time that he was that he was performing in that way. The other thing that uh, that we haven't talked about that, that, that made a huge difference in um, in his appearance was, you know, early in his career he had he had his hair in a process. And uh, that's the thing. It was straightened in, in, in the way that, that, that a lot of African American men of, of, of the, the well, of previous generations um, had, had dealt with their hair. And when the um, when the fashion for natural hair, for what were called afros and, and so on, came in, um, Otis it was Sam Cooke actually who told Otis that he had to, referring to his process. Uh, the one time they met, they met in an airport in Los Angeles, in, in, uh, in D.C., in Washington. And uh, Cook was very, you know, sort of, uh, he knew that Otis idolized him. And they had a nice conversation. And one of the things that Cook said to him about his process, he said, you got to get that thing off your head. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and Otis, of course, you know, immediately got that thing off of his head, um, had his hair sort of you know, done as, as uh, naturally as an afro. And it was so much more flattering to his features. Um, you know, if you saw a picture of Otis uh, in 1962, um, you, you'd regard him as a handsome man, but, but uh, he also looks kind of, well, he, he looks much older than, than he actually was, and he looks like he comes from another generation. And when he did uh, adopt a natural hairstyle, um, it, all of his, it, it, his, his whole face and his whole sort of head came into focus in a way that was, um, that was extremely appealing. And uh, and that gives us a moment to bring in our last song, which is the happy song. And I think it's a perfect example of the way Otis would lead with likability or lovability uh, before hitting you with the full wallop of the raw mm-hmm. sexuality. So let's hear the happy song. Well, sing this song, y'all. Oh. Singing it for my baby. She's only That's why I sing these happy songs. They go dum 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 dum. That was the happy song, which was a part of a batch of songs that don't come out until after Otis's death. And and we're pretty blessed that Otis, in the last months of his life, had some downtime because of throat surgery. He uh, took a few months, a few weeks off the road, a couple months, and and recovered from the throat surgery obsessed about Sergeant Pepper, thought about where his career was going, got to spend some time with his wife in what she said was really the only time that they lived together as husband and wife for any length of time because of his road commitments the rest of their marriage. And he writes this just explosion of songs. So they Stax is able to turn into three posthumous albums, and you know, including his masterpiece Dock of the Bay, but also things like Hard to Handle and a happy song. Talk about his artistic evolution in those last few months. Well, it's you know, whenever a performer dies young, uh, and many of them do, the question that hangs over their whole career is, you know, what, what would what, what would have happened? What would he have done? And um, 
uh, I'm thinking of Buddy Holly and I'm thinking of Sam Cooke and so on and so forth. Uh, in Otis's case, he left a pretty good blueprint of, of, of what he would have done um, in the sense that, yes, he, he for the first time uh, in a long time, for the first time ever, really, since he became a, a fairly accomplished songwriter, he had real downtime in which he could, uh, because, because he was uh, instructed not to sing after he had throat surgery for, for a number of weeks, um, he couldn't perform, he stayed at home. Um, and all he could really do, he couldn't even talk. He was told not to talk for the first couple of weeks of it. All he could really do was to sit there with his with his guitar and his tape recorder and his notebooks and write these songs. Um, again, one of the things about Otis was he was never not working. Uh, you know, what it, wherever he was, whatever he was doing, um, he was using, he, he, he was working, he was using the time. Um, but one of the things people don't understand about uh, touring in general is it's very hard to write uh, on tour. There are, there are a few well-known performers who've been able to do it, but touring is so much about logistics and, and exhaustion and so on and so forth that it's very hard to, to, to find the time to, to write songs um, when you're doing it. Uh, so this was, this, this was almost like a sabbatical for him, um, uh, his recuperation from the operation. And um, he uh, he used the time to to, to uh, sort of start to apply some of the lessons that he felt he had learned from listening to I don't think it was just Sergeant Pepper but it, you know listening to this, this whole explosion in in songwriting and record making that was reaching a kind of crescendo in 1967. Um, that that Sergeant Pepper sort of epitomized, but, but was by no means the only example of. And so he wrote. We, we don't know exactly how many of these these songs he wrote because Stax's record keeping is, uh, is is has always been kind of kind of sketchy. But there there are more than a dozen, uh, maybe as many as as two dozen songs were actually written in that period, or at least sort of perfected in that period. And as soon as he was allowed to start singing again, um, he hightailed it back to Memphis to start putting these songs down on tape. And the first thing that everybody noticed as soon as he started working there was that his voice um, after the operation and his recuperation from the operation, which had been bothering him a great deal for, for more than a year, his voice sounded better than it ever had. He had a, he had a, a um, there, there was just a kind of suppleness to it um, that had maybe never existed before as far as that goes, uh, given that he, he knew more about how to sing now. So that was a kind of revelation. Um, we know that he re-recorded his vocals on, on some songs that had already been recorded because with, with his so-called new voice. But um, he wrote this, uh, he, he wrote this sort of body of work and recorded it. And it wasn't all necessarily the recordings of it. Some of them are demos, some of them, um, of course, sometimes demos uh, uh, with musicians of the quality that they had at Stacks are good enough to be finished records. But um, everything, everything was, was sort of up in the air, especially because Stacks had finally hired a real engineer, Ron Capone, and was finally recording with uh, utilizing the technology of multi-track recording, such as it was. Um, it wasn't very sophisticated, but it was something. Um, so that... Uh, you know, uh, the idea of adding new tracks, uh, adding new instruments to some of these, uh, some of these, these, these songs that were recorded, um, may have been, may have been planned, but we don't know anything about all of that. Um, 
because uh, once they had recorded, a, a, again, about between 12 and 18 of these tracks, um, uh, Otis died in a plane crash. And uh, it's sort of... Um, uh, the, the, the one thing that I was very pleased about is that um, I guess it was two years ago, um, uh, 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 Rhino Records put together a um, a compendium, put, put together uh, 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 an album length album length uh, sort of sort of selection of the very best of that material, which was instead released sort of piecemeal over the next three years after Otis's death. But what, 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 what everybody tried to do, and I was a little bit involved in this was to pick the 12 best songs of the, of that new material and to say, this, this is the album that Otis might've released if he had lived. And for anybody who wants to listen to that, um, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary record. I mean, when, when, when you, you know, when you, when you, when you, when you, 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 you edit the, the best of that work, it's a truly extraordinary record. It's a record that, 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 that anticipates records like Marvin Gaye's, uh, what's going on in the sense of, um, you know, records that, that were made by, by, by black artists in the late sixties and early seventies, Stevie wonder comes to mind too. Sly stone comes to mind too, that in, in which the, the artist was able to play the role of sort of a tour in the recording studio of, of sort of bossing the process in the recording studio in a way that had not been, not been allowed until then. And so that's, you know, that becomes Otis's legacy is, is that incredible collection of songs and performances that, that, that he left behind. And that's, Doc of the Bay Sessions by Rhino Records, which you uh, helped compile. And, and, you know, I think along with the, the biography, that's a great contribution to uh, our appreciation of Otis Redding. So I'd like to thank you, Jonathan, for being so generous with your time and coming on this show. And this was Jonathan Gould, author of Otis Redding, An Unfinished Life. Thanks, Jonathan. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Come back next week for Nate's conversation with Dan Charnas about Russell Simmons, Rick Rubin, and the business of hip-hop. Otis Redding, An Unfinished Life by Jonathan Gould is available from Crown Archetype and can be found wherever fine books are sold.